Okay, good morning everyone and uh, wonderful to see you and as always uh, a great privilege to be able to preach and to bring the word of God to you this morning. Um, the series you well know uh, during the month of May is the May Day series. This year we're studying the concept of the imminence of the Lord Jesus Christ's return and his coming for his church. Um, the study is simply called Imminent. Um, our last message, we had a look at the distinction between the bride of Christ and Israel, the wife of God. We demonstrated there's a distinction in the use of those particular phrases within the Bible because we know historically there have been many who have conflated those two together. But not, that's not the only phrase that many members, many, many theologians, many teachers of the Bible have conflated together. Uh, they've also done, done with, uh, with what we're going to be dealing with this morning. And that is a simple phrase simply titled, The Day of Christ. The Day of Christ. You know, I open in a word of prayer, ask the Lord to bless our time and, uh, as we consider this. Heavenly Father, I pray dear Lord, Pray, dear Father, you would help me to overcome the challenge of bringing forward, Lord, a, a message that would otherwise be technical to one, dear Father, that can also be one that would bless us as far as our application is concerned. Not only, dear Lord, that we would understand what this means, but also, dear Lord, but how it applies within our lives, that we might be able to rejoice and that it might be a wonderful consolation to us, Father, as we live our days that it might encourage us, Lord, to be blameless in the day of Christ and to be able to rejoice, dear Lord, in the work that you continually do within our lives that we look forward to the imminent return of our Lord and Saviour for his church. We thank you, dear Lord, for this time and ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the early 20th century, there was a brilliant Indian mathematician by the name of Srinivasa Ramanujan. He had no formal training in pure mathematics. He nevertheless was able to solve over 3,000 incredibly complex problems, some of which were even considered to be unsolvable in his day. And he amazed the scientific community. He knew the, each answer to the problem was correct. He knew the answers were correct, but he didn't gain recognition until he was able to show how he came up with the solution. He needed to be able to show the workings out and the community wouldn't accept him unless he could demonstrate how he actually came to these solutions. They themselves recognised and saw that the, the solutions were correct but they simply couldn't understand how he came up with You see me choking up, up here because of, of the warmth. I'm, can I turn it off or do I got to keep it going? I'll keep it going and we'll just struggle through it. Sorry, I get all choked up when I get hot. I will. I'll have some water. Thank you. My wife's there. So. Uh, fair enough. Um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I've got to get over that. Um... This is what it's like to study the Word of God. To study the Word of God, it's no point just coming up with an answer. You need to be able to demonstrate 
how you came up with that answer. You need to be able to logically look at the scriptures, go through it, understand and comprehend the logical sequencing that comes out of the word of God. Um, we need to rightly divide the scriptures. And Paul speaks to this. He speaks to Timothy in Timothy 2.15, saying, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. There has to be a logically progressive understanding of the word of God that complex doctrines can be understood. All right? Uh, if this wasn't true, if this wasn't true, then what do, we, what do we say of the Lord who holds us accountable to know the word of God while we believe he also makes it deliberately obscure? Does, does that make any sense to you? I mean, can you, can you think God holds you accountable to know what the scriptures say, to know the doctrines? Well, how can that be true if we also believe that it's obscure? that it's deliberately obscure, that it's impossible to be able to know the truth of a matter. No, we, we cannot claim to worship the God of light if we believe that he keeps his word in darkness. I have believed for a long time now that the Bible is comprehensible, that it's understandable, that it's knowable, that it's written plainly, that it's written in a way that we can know what it says and that each and every person sitting here who desires to know the Lord would read the word and be able to glean from it the wonderful truths that are found therein. The day of Christ. The day of Christ is something that we're dealing with here today. And this is a complex phrase and it appears only a handful of times in the Bible it has allusions to it appearing a few more times and we know this because it, it, it appears in a similar context. The phrase is simply the day of Christ but it's also known as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ. Some additions that also need to be considered in context are these, the day, the day of visitation, that day. Again, They've got to be considered in their context. This morning I'm going to be preaching mostly on the application that stems from this phrase in their respective context. I'm also going to give you the answers in the sermon. As this mathematician did, I'm going to give you the answers. But in your newsletters today are my workings out. In your newsletters are my workings out. So if you want to be looking at the technical aspect or you want to be looking at how I came up with these particular answers, the newsletters are definitely worth studying and considering. There's at least, I think, six or seven or eight pages of my notes. They're my study notes. And study notes that I've only done in the last week. They're my study notes considering these six different relevant passages and my studying conclusions that I get directly out of the text. Those study notes don't come from other theologians. They simply come from me looking at the text and bringing what I can logically conceive out of them. Now... Having done so, if you want to hit me with a whole bunch of questions related to that, please come tonight. Please come tonight. Come to my home tonight as we will look at doing a bit of a question and answer and, and some other things. So I'm hoping that it will be a wonderful blessing for you. Now, I want to introduce to you the motive behind this. Last week we compared the bride of Christ, the church, to the wife of God, Israel. We'd seen something significant with respect to this. We'd seen that uh, 
one of which we saw is the virgin bride, the other an adulterous fornicator. One is to be presented white and pure, the other is to be returned to God. One is not appointed to wrath, the other will suffer the loss of two-thirds of its population. One is a mystery in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. The other begins in Genesis and is seen throughout the Bible. One comes into history and then leaves it. The other has a continuous line throughout it. One inherits heaven. The other inherits all the promises made to her on earth. One returns with her groom. The other is a remnant saved for her husband. The Bible teaches vast distinctions between the church and Israel, while many false teachers see none. See none. These are not workmen who are studying to be approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. They are conflating scripture. They're putting a blanket covering on phrases and they're applying it all the way through. You've seen that. I'm sure you would have heard it. You would have heard, I mean, I'm in independent Baptist church at the moment. So as an independent Baptist church, they always sort of say everywhere wine is written in the Bible, it's non-alcoholic. It's no alcohol. I came out of a charismatic church and they say everywhere wine is written in the Bible, it's alcoholic. (laughs) That's laziness. You study it in context. Noah didn't get drunk on grape juice, okay? The wine that was offered for for Christ, for the communion of the cup of Christ, had to be without leaven, had to be non-alcoholic. So we look at the context, the context of character, the context of what's going on behind the scenes, and it's exactly the same thing with this. The day of Christ and the day of the Lord is often conflated. Robert Gundry is a man whose writings in the 1970s led the way in post-tribulational thinking. He wrote this, In the New Testament, 16 expressions appear in which the term day is used eschatologically. In other words, eschatological study is a study of last things. It's the study of the end. Okay, 20 times day appears without a qualifying phrase. In view of the wide variety of expressions and the numerous instances where day occurs without special qualification, it seems a very dubious procedure to select five out of the 16 expressions lump together four of the five as equivalent to one another and distinguish the four from the one remaining. There is no solid basis then for distinguishing between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. You see what he's done? Because of the complexity that he sees here, he does not believe that there is any right, there is no solid basis for distinguishing between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And that's in his book, Church and Tribulation, on page 44. Alexander Rees in his book, Approaching the Advent of Christ, published in 1937. This book's actually available online in PDF form. It's for free. You can download it. He also declares that all references to the day refer to the day of the Lord. And this is in his book, Approaching the Advent of Christ, on page 167, right through to 183. You can see that playing itself out. But is this how we are to consider the scriptures? Is this how we are to read the scriptures? Do we, do we simply lump words together, lump phrases together and hope that they stick? Or do we study to show ourselves approved unto God? Workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth. Which? Which? We need to diligently consider the context of each. 
John Walford, in his famous defence of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, makes perfect sense when he wrote, The word day occurs more than 200 times in the New Testament alone and only becomes an eschatological term when the context so indicates. This is in his book, The Rapture Question, page 232. The day of Christ is completely different from the day of the Lord, that phrase. Both of them are referring to an end, but the day of Christ is a specific end and it has certain qualities that we're going to be looking at this morning. The day of the Lord is an actual period that extends from the beginning of the tribulation period in the Bible. Guess how far? Does anybody want to have a guess how far that goes? Is it just during the tribulation period? Is that the only place? Well, Second Peter actually extends that right through to the end of the millennium. Okay, So the day of the Lord extends from the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of that time, that signing of that treaty between, that covenant between Antichrist and, and the world and many, from there all the way through to the end of the millennium, where all things will be burnt up in a fervent heat and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The day of Christ intersects that right at the end of the tribulation right at the very end when the Lord Jesus comes with his saints. Okay? And you'll be able to see that in, those, in some of those study notes, how that plays itself out. The indicators that we see and the commonality of phrases and words and, and, and sequencing of events that are actually happening within those passages that we're going to be looking at has its culmination at that time. So as far as timing is concerned, the day of Christ is then. There's a number of signs that go before it. Okay? And we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, what Brother Cody read to you this morning. The day of Christ is different from the day of the Lord. This morning we're going to see that the Bible teaches of an anticipation for the day, a revelation in the day and a culmination of the day. And we're going to also understand how we are to live our lives before the day. Very, very different from everything that we see in Scripture with regards to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is foreboding and warning and frightening fear. There is a lot there with regards to the day of the Lord and there's nothing positive about it. Contrast that to the day of Christ. First point this morning is anticipation for the day. Anticipation for the day. In your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Have a look at five verses there. 14 to 18. Philippians chapter 2 and verse... 14. Beautiful epistle from Paul written from a prison cell and the considerations that he gives to the Philippian church is a wonderful blessing for them. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifices and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. 
For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. It's difficult to miss Paul's anticipation for the day of Christ. Here we see no fear, no looking for a time of great woe and trouble before it. In the passage, there's no indication to look toward the sun turning into darkness or the moon into blood. There's no judgment expected and no hint of a warning against deception. There's no wars or rumours of wars noted. There's no famine or pestilence. There's no fear of affliction. There are no earthquakes in diverse places. Nothing of the kind at all. Yet, unlike every passage that deals with the day of the Lord, there is genuine anticipation and rejoicing for the coming of the day of Christ. Paul writes in this passage saying that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain nor laboured in vain. Paul is aware that the true nature of the fruit of his work that's been done is going to be revealed in that day. In other words, he's going to see the fruit of his work. He's done an incredible amount of work in the writing of these letters and in all his evangelism and all that sort of stuff. He wants to be able to see that that has been fruitful work. Not that the intentions of his work were not fruitful. He's confident that he will be receiving a reward because he knows through a good conscience that his intentions were pure. But he's going to be able to actually see the witness of that work performed in the lives of the people that he's shared the wonderful word of the Lord with. I'm going to see the same thing. I'm going to see the same thing. I'm going to see whether or not you know, the preaching from this pulpit not only has been in accord with the word of God, which I believe is, but I'm also going to be able to see how that's revealed itself within your life in that day. In that day is a time of revelation, and we'll talk about that in the next point. But also what we see is something of a blessing here. Paul speaks to that to look forward to. He writes of a behavior and a manner of living in the text. He says, do all things without murmuring, murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. How we live until the day of Christ, we're going to be talking about in the last passage. But it's also an attribute of the day of Christ. It's what we're looking forward to. We're living in a way that is going to be a blessing to us in the day of of Christ because that day is going to reveal it. We are to shine as lights in the world, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. This is what we see here is an assessment of the people that you live among. Okay, so as far as the people that you live among, their consideration of you is that you're a light in the world, that that you you live in a way to demonstrate your good works to them And that revelation to them is also going to be a blessing when the Lord comes. Even your persecutors, even those who persecute you, even those who come against you, they will see your good works. And the Bible says, glorify God. They will glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of 
visitation. That's another phrase that that we're looking at here in the context respecting to the day of Christ. Why will they glorify God in that day? What is it about that day that will reveal to all people the true nature of the manner of life, that, that conversation to which they now speak of you as evildoers? What is it going to be about the day of Christ that's going to actually reveal the true nature of our works? There's something about that day that's going to open up, it's going to take away the veil. There seems to be something about the day of visitation, the day of Christ, that reveals the true state of things, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And Paul anticipates it with joy. He, he's looking forward to seeing the fruit of that work, to see whether or not he had run in vain or laboured in vain. Not that he'd lose his reward for the result, but that the integrity of the work itself would be revealed. What? At the moment, we've got a tendency of living our lives in a way that we, we sometimes give excuses or rationalism to doing the things that satisfy the flesh. And we say things like, if I do this, then at the same time I can bless God with this and this. No, I'm sure none of you have ever done that. Um, I did it when I, <laughs> I did it when I bought my bike. Remember, remember the motorcycle that I broke my leg on? That one there. BMW. That one. And uh, the Lord revealed the truth of my motives by making sure that. I <laughs> I would get rid of that bike. But I remembered thinking that if I buy that bike, I could go into the city and hand out tracts and this and that and the other. Stuff that I never did, right? But I justified things like that within my... I know you guys have never done that, you know. The day of Christ is to reveal the truth of our motives behind all things that we do. We are to live our lives in a good conscience. Check your lives and your motives now that they are just before a holy God. Paul was excited about that day because as we'll see later on, he had a clear conscience, a good conscience. Remember the Bible says in that passage that we read every first week of the month that we judge ourselves that we be not judged. We need to be clear of a good conscience. The works that we undertake and that we do need to be for the Lord and the day will reveal it. The day will declare it and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. The revelation in that day, the second point. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, and again we'll have a look at five verses there from verses 4 to 8. The first chapter of the first letter Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his introduction, and in verse 4 he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, 
waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, we're able to see the context of the passage and of that which Paul writes. In the first chapter of this epistle to the Corinthian church, Paul's desire was to encourage them respecting their peculiar gifts, gifts that they have been enriched by and gifts that are to be employed for the working of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the testimony of Christ to all people and to encourage the church itself. Paul stated that they will be left in no gift as they wait for what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm them unto when? Confirm them unto the end. Confirm them unto the end. So the focus is the looking forward. You're to grow in spiritual gifts, waiting for the coming of Christ, who will confirm you unto the end. There's something about the end there that confirms the works of those spiritual gifts. You get that? I haven't gone too... The context here seems fairly clear. He speaks in the present and encourages the church to look for the return of Christ, who will also confirm them right up until the very end. He states something else that's worthy of note. He says this, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That you might be blameless. There's something about the day of Christ that's going to be revealing whether or not you are blameworthy or blameless. That's the only two options. The only option here is that you might be found blameless. There's a risk that you might not be found blameless. There's a risk that you may be found blameworthy. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put that in the text. Does that make sense? So there's something about the day of Christ that reveals, it's revelatory, it reveals the true nature of things. Okay? And Paul's desire is that they would be blameless in the day of Christ. Daniel writes about this also at the very end of his prophecy. He says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12.2 You are going to awake in one form or another. Some will be to life everlasting, some will be to shame and contempt. The last book of our Bible is called, anybody guess? Revelation. 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 Its full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. There are, there are a number of versions that actually have the title The Revelation of the Apostle John or John. It's not his revelation at all. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's seen in the first words of that book. The revelation is where is the English translation of the word apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse. And when the world thinks about the word apocalypse, they're very, very concerned. They always look at it as a negative. Okay, don't they? Oh, it's the, about the apocalypse, you know. And this is the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And indeed, it's part of the day of the Lord. But revelation and the apocalypse simply refer to the unveiling. The unveiling. The lifting of the veil. At the moment, there are things going on around us that we have no ability to comprehend or see. But there's something about that time where that veil between our temporal world and the heavenly is going to be lifted. How that's going to manifest itself, I've got no idea. 
But that's what that refers to. It refers to a revelation, a revealing of the truth behind things, a manifestation of that which is real. And that's where we are with regards to right now we're living a life in a certain manner and the day will declare whether or not that was right, whether or not we can be blameless or blameworthy. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're in 1 Corinthians. Have a look at chapter 3. Paul speaks to this here, directly speaks to this here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He writes here saying, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I'm not sure if you've ever considered this passage in the light of the day of Christ, but that's what it alludes to. The link here is unmistakable. There's a day when our works will be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Our works are going to be made manifest. There's a day in which we are encouraged to live a life that we might be found blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gentleman that I spoke to a number of years ago who's a pastor of a charismatic church. He's, he's actually the senior pastor of the franchise. Okay? the senior pastor of the, the modern churches have got franchises, they've got campuses and all that sort of stuff, right? And personal conversation he had with me that he'd been, on behalf of the church, setting up these businesses. And he'd stated to me, he goes, I don't, the biggest fear that I have is that I don't know if I'm actually doing the right thing before God. You see, the problem with the charismatic churches are the Bible actually teaches that the church itself is to give for the work of the church. Okay? They are to provide of their churches to provide out of their own resources, out of their own funds, the giving that actually comes, oh, we've got a box at the back for it, to support the church and the ministry of the church. But the charismatic churches in these modern days, too many people are too hungry to hold on to every single cent that they have rather than actually trusting the Lord with the result. And the charismatic churches are a perfect example of that. So instead of actually expecting money to come from the congregation, he sets up businesses and gets the pastors of those churches completely distracted in things that they have no business in. So he's asking me the question. Well, he didn't ask me a question. He sort of made that statement. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing before God. And I quoted this. I said, well, the day will declare it. You know, are we trusting the Lord in his word, building up gold, silver, precious stones that will endure the fire, or are we building up wood, hay and stubble that will get burnt up? 
you will be saved. But all the work that you're doing will have no reward. You will suffer loss. That's the sad part, beloved. That is what the day shall declare. The day shall declare the level of reward. This is for those who are born again, those who are saved. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4.8. Second Timothy 4 and verse 8. And listen to Paul's own testimony as he comes to the end of his ministry. He's very much aware that he is coming to the end of his life. And he writes here to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, saying, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do you see this, beloved? Do you see this? Do you see this interesting link? There is, a, there is a revelation, there is a reward that's going to be given and it's going to be given on that day. But there's also an interesting link with regards to his appearing. There's an interesting link there that we actually see and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment because there are two things. I'll talk about that when the time comes. Talk about that when I get ahead of myself, sorry. I get excited. Paul looks forward to reward being given in that day. And it's not to him only, he says, but it's also for all those who love his appearing. This is those who are watching. This are those who are waiting for the Lord's return any moment, even now, maybe now. This is for those who are waiting for Jesus' return, who love his appearing. The day of Christ is not a day for those who, that know Christ should fear. This is a day when, yes, our works are going to be tried by fire, but it's a day that we are anticipating and we are looking forward to, especially as you're living your life for the Lord. It's, there's a crown of righteousness. See, at the very least, beloved, you're all going to be receiving a crown of righteousness. Your righteousness, do you think? You know, the greatest, most righteous act that you have ever done is you have believed the testimony concerning Christ. You believed. You believed that he died for your sins. You believed that he was put on that cross to cover all your debt that is your righteous reward you believed God and it was accounted to you for righteousness guys you have no idea how incredible that is you will receive a crown of righteousness you can believe the scriptures with regards to that because you've believed that Jesus died for your sins if you've believed not then you stand condemned still the greatest thing that you have done is believed God at his word. That's why you've got something to look forward to when the Lord comes. That's why you've got something to look forward to in the day of Christ. Paul saw that, but I want you to look at this. This is the only contrast I'm going to provide for you with regards to the day of the Lord. 
Okay, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you've found yourself in Matthew, just go back one book. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. It's not a bad sized book, so you should be able to find it relatively easy. Malachi chapter 4. He writes here, and just to, we'll have a look at, we'll make sure that we've got the context when we look at the fifth verse, but have a look at verse 1, Malachi 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as the calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under, your soles, under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. This is, this is a day of trials. This is a day of fire that consumes not only the works, but the wicked. These are not people who were saved through the fire, but they are burnt up in it. But when is this? When does, when does Malachi refer to this? Have a look at verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is referring to the day of the Lord. Obadiah 15. Now, oh, now just sorry. A lot of you are going to be confused saying, well, hang on. Didn't Elijah come? Elijah came, didn't he? Jesus actually said, John is Elijah. He said, if you would receive it, this is Elijah who was promised to come. Well, that's interesting. Elijah was going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Remember what I preached a while ago. Remember what you see within the scriptures. There is no church. There is no parenthesis in history. The Lord Jesus comes, the prophet Elijah returns, he points, his, he points to the truth of Christ, the reality of Christ, then the day of the Lord comes immediately afterwards. There is no parenthesis of the church in the Old Testament. That's why the church is a mystery in there. Okay? It appears in history and it comes out of history. Obadiah 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen as thou hast done. It shall be as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. About the day of the Lord, similar to the day of Christ, there is a revelation of reward. There is a revelation of judgment. There is a revelation of reward. Revelation of the true works. To the one who are saved, it's one of reward. To the others who are lost, it's one of judgment. This is a distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. It's both in application motivation, arbitration and revelation. All of those are distinct between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2.12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty and upon every one that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. Isaiah 13.9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel with wrath and fierce anger to the lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. Turn your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. So if you're in Malachi, go back about three books from Malachi. You should find Zephaniah. Not Zechariah. That's the one just before Malachi. A couple more behind that. Zephaniah 
chapter 2. I want you to see the most fascinating opportunity present itself to those who will remain on the earth during the time of the day of the Lord's wrath and judgment. It's a really, really interesting passage. Zephaniah chapter 2. And we'll have a look. Um, yeah, verse 1. We'll just take it from verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. This, this alludes to the culmination of the day. In that day, there will be many that will come to Christ. There's a lot of people who sit there and they say that the church is in the book of Revelation. You can, you can see it. It speaks about saints and the elect. No, the church is gone. But during that time, multitudes will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it says that they may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Revelation 6 and 7 speak with a lot greater clarity and we'll speak about that more in the last sermon of the series. With all there is to do for the Lord and all the priorities that you have set yourself, can I ask you, are you pleased? Are you pleased with how you've been living your life for the Lord since you've been saved? Are you pleased? Because the day will declare it. The day will declare it. My desire for you above everything else is that you are storing for yourselves gold and silver and precious stones and that it's not wood, hay and stubble. That you live your life in this world now anticipating the next because what's incredibly important to understand is that your life here and now determines the next. You have a temporal existence here on earth, but how you live your life here on earth, you are rewarded for all eternity. It directly relates to the next life. And that's why the Bible continually speaks about reward and the revelation of those wonderful things that you do here and now. Will you dedicate yourself and your rest of your life to doing the things that the Lord... You know, you've got gifts. Did I ever mention that? The Lord has given you gifts. You've got gifts. There are things that the Lord has given to you to bless the work that you are to do. You're created for a purpose, beloved. But it's not the purpose that just suits you. It's a purpose that suits both you and those who you have been left here to be able to impact to shine as lights in the world. Does that mean you're all going to be pastors? No. Does that mean you're all going to be preachers? No. Teachers? No, not necessarily. They're all different gifts. They're all diverse. You can bloom where you're planted without any trouble whatsoever. Testify to the truth of Christ by your manner of life and in every way share the gospel of his wonderful love. Reveal to all people and have an answer ready to, uh, to answer those who ask you of the hope that you've got in you. There's a time when all that you do comes to an end and there will be no more that you can do. It's the culmination of the day. Title of my next point, the culmination of the day. 
culmination of the day. Philippians chapter 1. Here we have two references to the day of Christ and it's a culminating reference. Have a look at the words that go before it. But we'll read it from the third verse. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. Philippians 1, Philippians 1 verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ even as it is meek for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as in my bonds and in the defence of the confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in, the knowledge, in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. You notice the phrase? Until the grace, until the day of Jesus Christ, till the day of Christ. It'll be a day when all our works and all that we are done come to a conclusion, a culmination, if you will. An effort, everything that we have done is going to be reckoned at that day. It's going to be a day when the, the bridesmaids have waited for the groom. He is going to come and take those who have their lamps filled with oil and take them in with him and the door will be shut. The door will be shut. The culmination of our works are attended in two ways. Death. And the rapture of the church. That is going to culminate all our work. Can't do any more work. There is no work that you can do in the grave. There are no recompenses that you can make. There's no people to forgive. There is none to apologise to for the sin that you've done against them in this life. There is no more good that you can do. There's no more books that you can write. There's no new songs that you can sing. And there's no good work to begin in the grave. It's done. It's over. It's a culmination of your life. It's finished. You can reconcile yourself to no one. You can no longer tell anyone that you love them. You can have no more opportunity to share the gospel and you can no longer warn of the wrath to come upon this city of destruction. It's finished. Finished. It's come to an end. The day of Christ is the culmination of days where there is to be a reckoning of all that has gone before and a tallying of the nature of those things. Everything's going to be counted and everything's going to be given consideration. Well, what, what things? Well, some things might surprise you. There's going to be some things that you're going to be, that's going to be tallied up within your life that might surprise you. Like the servants of the Lord who were given talents to be employed with an, expen- with an expected increase of return What have you done with the gifts that the Lord has given you? What have you done? Have you at least given them to the banker that you might receive the rest with with usury, with increase, with interest? Or have you buried your gifts, you've buried your talents 
in a napkin just to give that back to the Lord with no increase. What have you done? What have you done with the gifts the Lord has given you? Jesus criticized the Pharisees who did one thing but left the others undone. In Matthew 22, verse 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. What have you misapplied respecting your works for the Lord? What have you rationalised away in your own minds and left the important things out of the way? How have you set your priorities, beloved? How have you set your priorities? You've got 24 hours in the day. Do you tithe your time? You ever thought about tithing your time? Sure, many of you are faithful in tithing of your increase, but are you tithing your time? Do you give two and a half hours to the Lord every day? Do you spend that time reading his word, spending time with the Lord in prayer? Are you just hoping you're going to be transformed by osmosis? Huh. I'm grateful that you think so highly of me that the pulpit can completely change your life, but I'm afraid you're going to be sorely disappointed, beloved. Revelation 2 and 3 sees our Lord Jesus Christ write a report card to each of the seven churches. Have you considered those? They're worth considering and they're very interesting to read because there's one thing that you're going to discover in them and it's pretty safe to say that each church was surprised with the report. (laughs) Each church was surprised. To some, the report was better than expected. But to most, they would have been sorely disappointed. Do you know the record the Lord keeps of you? What if I told you that there's a record of every time you think upon the Lord? What if I told you that that's true? You don't have to believe me. You can turn there. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. 3.16 is a popular passage in the Bible. Turn there with me. Malachi 3.16. Remember, it was the last book of the Bible just before the Gospel of Matthew. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.16. It says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Exciting is that? I never knew that until I read it. I was so excited. The idea that there's a book of remembrance of every time I think upon the name of the Lord. Every time I think about Christ. How much of your waking hours do you think about Christ? When you go to bed, is he the last thought in your mind? When you wake up, is he the first? There was a translator of the King James Bible who actually lamented in his journal saying... I have for two days now mourned greatly because I've woken up and the Lord was not my first thought. How do we compare? How do we compare? What about if there was a record kept of your tears? Turn to Psalm 56. Psalm 56.
Psalm 56 and verse 8. Psalm 56, verse 8. Read David's own writing. He says, Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is with me. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Beloved, there are tears in heaven and those tears are wiped away. But there is a certain indicator here that they are in his book. That they are in his book. Archaeologically, do you know that there were bottles found and discovered that people kept their tears? They kept their tears. I get bagged sometimes because I stand at the pulpit and I cry. (laughs) I'm not upset about it. The Lord keeps my tears. He keeps a record of them. And it's not just the tears that you cry because of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the tears that you cry when evil comes against you, when things are happening within your life, when you mourn and you sorrow about the things that are occurring, when you sorrow for loss of loved ones or, or family or, or difficulty with children and with, or, or with parents and, and, and all those troubles that you have because you mourn for them and you desire that they would have a fullness of life in Christ, that they would just believe God at his word and trust him and rejoice and you sorrow and you mourn for the lack their unwillingness to be able to do so. You, you sorrow for the pain that's caused upon other people around the world. You sorrow for the harm that's been done. You tear for that and the Lord keeps a record. <laughs> and this will be revealed in the day of Christ, beloved. You see, it's not just the things that you do. It's the heart. It's the heart that desires the Lord more than anything else. That's what's going to be revealed in that glorious day. We doubt there's going to be a culmination of the work. We ask whether or not we're happy with our own so far. Yet, no doubt, there's one thing that's also true, and that is that we are always going to be unprofitable servants, aren't we? Luke 17.10, Jesus tells us that. But we all should long to hear the words of our Lord in that day where he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If there's anything that you want to hear more than anything else, that's what you want to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Last point this morning, our life before the day. Our life before the day. And my apologies if this has gone on longer than I intended. I'll try and make this short, although... It's probably going to be a little impossible to do. Our life before the day, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Let's just take a look from verse 12. 
Paul writes here saying, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you would. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. There doesn't need to be any guesswork as to the revelation of the nature of our works to the Lord, whether they be of motives pure or selfish. There doesn't need to be any guesswork on our part. We can know whether or not our works are pure or are they selfish, and it all comes down to the testimony of our conscience. How in tune are we with our own conscience? Are we convicted that our testimonies with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ and our works for the Lord are not of a pure motive? Is there a godly sincerity of the heart that we desire the things of the Lord more than we desire anything else within our life? What is the testimony of a clear conscience and a good conscience? Well, this is where we judge ourselves, that we be not judged. Remember, Paul's talking to the Corinthians here. This is a church very similar to the churches in our modern day today. It's a, it's a church that's corrupt, that's got difficulties within it. That men are coming in and sleeping with their father's wives and that sort of thing going on. There's wickedness going on within this church and Paul's writing to correct them and to deal with them. So it's a church very well set in our modern age. But how are we to live? How are we to live now? Well, it's really simple. Probably easier said than done. Four times in the Bible we have this one phrase. It's one time in the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. It's another time in the book of Romans, another time in Galatians, and it's another time in the book of Hebrews. And simply, the just shall live by faith. How we are to live, the just shall live by faith. We live by faith. We live believing Jesus at his words. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or laboured in vain. Ephesians 5.27, he says, that, ye might, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. This is how the Lord receives us as his church. In Titus, the most wonderful passage that we have in Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Here we are looking forward, loving the appearing of the Lord, looking forward to his coming, who can come now. And this is what we're looking forward to more than anything else. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death 
to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. And last passages here. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All of a sudden we've got a timeline. All of a sudden we have a timeline. We have a timeline here revealed to us in this text. When is the day of Christ? Is it imminent? No, the day of Christ is not imminent. The day of Christ has an appointed time and it's when the Lord Jesus Christ will come with all his saints. We are looking for the blessed and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is imminent. There's another thing that's imminent and that's our life coming to a close. That's also imminent. But we're not looking for that really. We're looking for the appearing of the Lord. But the day of Christ has a specific timeline in scripture and that timeline as we see perfectly uh, in context here is at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Really? Yeah, really. It helps understand one last passage. One last passage. And it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's one of the most difficult passages that people have dealt with in the past, not considering the phrase in context, because it gives the appearance for many who think that they will endure the time to come. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to introduce this. If you want to ask questions about it, come tonight. Come tonight. We can talk more about it tonight. But have a look at the context. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes to them specifically with regards to the day of Christ. He writes and says in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Sorry, for some reason I've cut out. Didn't have the first couple of verses. Second Thessalonians. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. When is the day of Christ? The day of Christ is not the rapture of the church, beloved. The day of Christ is the day when the works of the church are going to be revealed. We have signs preceding that. Paul makes that clear. This is not referring to the day of the Lord. This is referring to the day of Christ that intersects the day of the Lord at the end. So, in this text, in this passage alone, we have an understanding of when the day of Christ is. The passage before it that I just read, where it speaks about 
un- being unblameable and found in holiness before God, even our Father, when? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This morning, beloved, I've tried to show a distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. We are now to live our lives knowing that our work will be revealed and the truth of everything about us will be shown within that day. And it's something that we are to look forward to in anticipation, that we could glorify God in that day. And let's live our lives desiring to see the wonderful fruit of our work that's going to be revealed in that day. Should we not? This is how we should live. And I'm looking forward to seeing the fruit of it. I'm looking forward to seeing the wonderful fruit of it within your own lives. More and more that we can talk about that and I am more than available to discuss it. Um, But I'd encourage you, please, to consider coming this evening. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. There's so much, dear Father, here that we were to consider and I pray, dear Lord, that you would bless us, that you would give us an understanding of the wonderful truth of the Scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would bless those who have received and heard and and I pray, dear Lord, that each one of us would desire to live unblameable in this present life, that we would shine as lights in the world and that we may be able to be a blessing to all those who we impact every day and that we would glorify you And we expect you, dear Lord, to come any moment and we look forward to that day where all these things will be revealed. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.